Well, good morning. If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians. We'll continue this morning, resume rather, with looking at uh, this important passage in Colossians chapter 3. I know it's been a while, so I'm going to take some time to lay some additional foundation and as we continue to work through verse 18. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we love you and we're so grateful for your um, never-ending love for us, the love that pursued us even when we were rebels, the love that changed us, that gave us a new heart to love and to seek you and to uh, pursue you in the context of seeing something greater than ourselves. We're so grateful for that, Lord. Thank you for the provision that you have made for us. Thank you for watching over us. Thank you for all the blessings that you have bestowed upon us. And most of all, thank you for our salvation, so great a salvation. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us this morning through your spirit. Help us to comprehend the passages that we're going to be looking at. We're grateful for your word. Help us to be good students of it. Help us to comprehend it. We pray, Lord, that you would protect our minds this morning as we focus here for this brief moment of time at the beginning of the week. Um, We pray, Lord, that our minds would be transformed, that we would see these important foundations that you have laid for um, the family and for the relationship between a husband and a wife. And we're so grateful, Lord, in the manner in which you've provided for us in this way. You certainly do love us, and it's evident by what you have done for us. We ask, Lord, that you would keep us and preserve us cause us to be salt and light, and we ask that you would uh, equip us to do the good work that you've called us to do. We praise you in the name of Jesus Christ, our blessed Redeemer. Amen. Well, Colossians chapter 3, um, let's go back and, and, and pick up at verse 12. Uh, just by way of foundation and context, we've been looking at Colossians now for a little while, and um, uh, We'll, we'll continue to do that for a little while longer. No promises. But verse 12, of course, is an important passage, and it reads as follows, beginning there at verse 12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father." Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. 
So we have taken the time to unpackage um, these verses. We know that as we move into this balance of chapter 3 that Paul is transitioning in part. He's dealt with some of the imperatives in the first portion, but really gets into those things that we do as a consequence of the doctrines that are taught in the preceding two and a half chapters. And that's important for us to keep in mind as we consider what Paul has for us here. For Paul, the importance of that union with Christ um, is played out in how we conduct ourselves. Those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ necessarily, axiomatically, if you will, conduct themselves in a certain manner. Indeed, our election is even tied to the fact that that election brings about a pattern of behavior and conduct. There's an expectation, verse 12 makes it abundantly clear, that the elect of God will indeed conduct themselves in accordance with these things that are communicated here. We don't always do it perfectly. We don't always do it as we ought to do it, but we're certainly called to do it. And the idea is that as we move along in our Christian life, as the Lord sanctifies us and he works that out in us, that these things will become more evident and more common. And the absence of them, of course, begs an important question as to whether or not we even know the Lord to begin with. And so it's important for us to keep these things in mind and to be mindful also of the fact that we're not doing these things out of any sense of drudgery or or in a, an attitude of, oh, I just got to do it to get through it. No, the attitude is to be one of gratitude. We want to delight in what the Lord has called us to do. And so Paul reminds us in verse 16 of chapter, chapter 3, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And the, and the idea there, of course, as we've talked about, is that the, the word has an impact and that it's important to you and that the word transforms and changes us into more and more like the image of Christ. And Paul communicates that as well in the first part of chapter 3, where we talk about the new nature and God equipping us and clothing us in that new nature and the consequences of that for us. And so, as we return to this passage in Colossians, it's important to remember what it is that Paul is doing here in chapter 3. He's applying the reality of the doctrines he's taught to in regards to everyday life. And so doctrines just aren't some type of sterile laboratory idea. We don't just examine them in the context of a sterile setting. We look at them and then we apply them in everyday life. And that's what Paul is anticipating and expecting. All of those great truths that we've looked at, all of those things that we've considered in chapter one, in chapter two, and in part of chapter three, now play themselves out in the reality of how we live and act every day. Ultimately, what he's doing here is establishing how it is that Christians live with each other in the church and in their homes and within the culture. Christians ultimately act different and do things differently because we are different. We've been changed. We've been transformed. We're no longer the natural man who does not understand the things of God, but rather we can now comprehend them, we delight in them, and we pursue them with great vigor because we love Jesus Christ so very much. So the bottom line for Paul is this, because of Christ, Christians are distinctly and uniquely different from the world. And that's so important because I think oftentimes we have lost sight of that, and, and sadly, Christians oftentimes don't look much different than the world. We are great imitators, unfortunately, and oftentimes Christians just adapt themselves to whatever happens to be going on in the current culture. We're going to see that today as we tease out this important issue of God's mandate for marriage. 
And the church today is imploding on this issue as we move into gender fluidity issues and inability to identify what people really are, that we're buying into the lies that are being told by people with regard to God's creative order. And ultimately, that undermines his word and his purpose, both within the church and within the family. And so for Paul, it's important for us to be reminded of who it is that we are. And understanding who we are then causes us to revel in the wonder of what God has done for us, and we live that out in terms of our everyday life with people around us and the people with whom we live. We are living out the reality of our new natures, ultimately. And so one of these realities is understanding and living within God's creative order and design for men and women within marriage to come to recognize and accept God's rather than man's determination as to what is right and wrong in all matters, including marriage and including the relationship between a husband and a wife. Paul is telling us that it is Christ who defines what is, proper, what is the proper order between the sexes, not secular society. And let me emphasize that again. Paul is making certain that we understand that it is Jesus Christ who defines what is proper, what is the proper order between the sexes, not secular society. It's unfortunate, and I've run into this, where people within the church almost look um, as cross-eyed at God's word about these issues as unregenerate people do. The problem is, is that the ideas of the world have infiltrated the church, feminism, humanism, relativism, all of these things have come into the church and have undermined what it is that God intended and directed when he created male and female. I think it's significant that at the very beginning of the Bible, and we're going to take the time to look at this today, that God establishes the baseline as it relates to the creation of man and woman as well as their relationship with each other. It's at the very beginning. That's important. Its placement at the very beginning is incredibly important. And so we need to make certain that as Christians, we are checking ourselves against God's word that we are making certain that our minds are being formed by the content of God's word rather than what the world has to offer or the world's recapitulation of what God's word says. Unfortunately, Christians have bought into the, the caricatures and the maligning that is so often found within the world about God's intended order. We see the churches caving in on this today. We see capitulation on issues regarding um, gender and even use of the word gender in the context of talking about God's creative order and design. The idea of fluidity, the idea of inability to truly identify, the idea that we can change and alter what God has intended, and that somehow God permits that is an offense to God and contrary to his word, and we need to make certain that we are understanding that. Paul's hope and mine as well is that you come to understand that all of those sinful men and women have misunderstood and abused the doctrine of headship and submission, the doctrine itself is rooted in God's wisdom and love. When it is applied in love, it reflects God's design for the sexes. And notice that I said something very important. We are talking about the doctrine of headship and submission. These aren't just general ideas. These are doctrines communicated in God's word, and as a consequence, you and I need to understand them. These are not options. These are not gray areas. They are not mere suggestions. God 
begins the Bible, and significantly, with communicating to us the doctrine of headship and submission within the confines of marriage and the relationship between men and women. And I'll have more to say about that, of course. So we do not hold to this view because we want to maintain some type of archaic, legalistic traditions or male supremacy. And, and sadly, many Christians are buying into that. In this hypersensitive, woke culture, the church is capitulating on that issue and even buying into the language that's used to describe what the Bible says about God's creative order and design for men and women. Rather than capitulating, we are to uphold it because we believe that Christ taught both equality and sex-based role distinctions in the Word. That's His creative order. And sadly, human traditions can blind the minds of even the best people. For Christians, the issue of the role of the sexes is an issue of, thus saith the Lord, not thus saith the culture. We believe in role distinctions because the Bible teaches them. And the Bible is what? The Word of God. It is the final authority in what? Faith and practice. That's not optional. And nor should it be considered to be an option that's a begrudging option. Oh, I got to do what the Bible says. Woe is me. Well, many Christians have that attitude, and as a consequence, they have cast it aside. The Word of God establishes what is, not, what is normative. Normative. Again, think about this, please. If you're taking notes, please write this word down. The phrase down, the Word of God established what is normative for marriage and significantly it is one of the very first um, normative principles set forth in Scripture as found in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. So again, the Bible is not nor communicating an alternative view that is contrary to what either nature or culture demands. The Bible is the normative principle. What everyone else is doing is not normative. All right? So you don't have, as a believer, I want to make it abundantly clear, in, in the context of how you view marriage and the relationship between a husband and a wife, you don't have option A and option B, and they're both equal. No, you have God's word, and that's it. Thus saith the Lord, right? Now, now you may say, Pastor, that's too dogmatic, and we don't live in a day and age when, when dogmatism and doctrine sell very well. Well, that's okay. I, I'm, I'm just here to pass on the information, if you will. And I would encourage you and exhort you as the redeemed of Christ to revel in it. And again, here's the idea. We, we, we have bought into the idea that we need to look askance at this, that somehow in our more, more elevated sense of what is equitable, what is fair, what is proper, that there is a better way to do this than what God's Word says. Sadly, people like Tim Keller have, have led people into this type of error when they come and tell us that Genesis chapter 1 through 3 are nothing more than poetic fable, that they're not, even, they're not to be taken in any literal context. He doesn't even believe in a six-day creation. He's a theistic evolutionary, and, and he, he rejects the premise contained within Genesis 1 through 3. Well, sadly... That just begins to undermine everything. You get the beginning wrong, you're going to get the rest of the book wrong. And so, we need to make certain 
that we aren't looking askance at this. Now, uh, one of the things I had thought about doing was, was looking at, Gen- at Colossians chapter 3.18 and giving the wives a list of things that reflect that they're in submission to their husbands. And, and I can do that. And, and, I, and I may do that in the context of just giving examples of what that looks like. But what I want to do, rather, is to go back and reconsider what it is that God ordained in the context of the creative order and his purpose in creating male and female and bringing Adam and Eve together. My, my belief is that if you have a better understanding and grasp of the foundation that the doctrines of headship and submission will then make more sense to you and that your heart then will be more inclined to joyfully do what the Lord requires. If you have a better understanding of the foundation, and I think oftentimes these things are forgotten. We look at a passage like Colossians 3.18, we eisegete it, we isolate it, and automatically begin to make assumptions that are not biblical. Where does Paul come up with the idea in 3.18 that there is anything to even say about the relationship between a husband and a wife. Why would Paul even take the time to speak to this issue in light of all the things that are going on in the church in Colossae? I think that's pretty significant. Consider for a moment what's happening in Colossae. You've got this false teacher who's come in, and he's wreaking havoc. He's tearing the church apart. He's attacking Christ. He's undermining Christ's authority. He's causing people to focus on themselves. He's establishing a works-based righteousness. He's introducing spiritism, mysticism, ex-cathedral revelation, and the worship of angels, for Pete's sake. But all of a sudden, Paul's talking about the home. Paul's talking about the relationship between a husband and a wife. And for Paul, that's important because what he has done, he's established, first of all, that what the false teacher is teaching is not biblical. It's not based on Christ. It's of no profit. It doesn't do anything with regard to fighting sin. He establishes who we are in Jesus Christ, and he then says, guess what? Christians act and think a certain way. They don't act like this goof that's come into your church. And so he wants to make certain that the foundations are established and recognized. So let's begin to consider, and we're going to take part of today and probably part of next Sunday, to consider what it is that God says about marriage and the foundations that laid for us, that have been laid for us. Significantly, Jesus and Peter and Paul affirm the truthfulness of the Genesis record and base their teachings on it as it relates to the roles of men and women. That's significant. And so the same is true for us today. What was good for Jesus and what was good for Paul and what was good for Peter is good for us too. And if we want to understand God's will for the sexes, we must follow Christ's example. When Jesus and his apostles, Peter and Paul, wanted to recapture the original design for marriage, they go back to Genesis, which is what? The book of beginnings. The book of beginnings. It's interesting, one commentator I read made the following note about this particular point. He says this, other New Testament writers, especially Paul, followed Jesus' lead. Most of the important passages on men-women roles in the New Testament refer back either explicitly or implicitly to the first three chapters of Genesis. It is not possible to understand the New Testament teaching on men and women without understanding how it is founded on the creation of Adam and Eve and on God's purpose as revealed in the creation of the human race. That's important. And so, ladies and men, 
husbands and wives, if you want to have a proper understanding of, of God's intention as it relates to your relationship with, with each other within the context of marriage, we go back to Genesis. This is the foundation. I would submit to you that if, um, as a wife, you struggle with the idea of submission, that it's important for you to go back and re-examine what happened in Genesis 1 through 3 so you can see clearly and begin to base your thoughts on what God has ordained. What God has ordained. And so we want to make certain that we're understanding this. I would say to you fathers that it's important for you and as a husband to understand what it is that God expects of you within the role that you play as a husband and even as a father, as we'll see as we move through this chapter 3 and the other verses. Let's not forget the exhortation that we find in the, in the book of Deuteronomy. Turn with me to Deuteronomy. The significance of what God's word contains as it relates to it being the structure within which we form our thoughts about things. All right? This is incredibly important, and I think it's been forgotten. And and, and dads and husbands, I would encourage you to be reminded of this. This is significant. Look what what it says in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning with verse 4. Deuteronomy 6, 4, here, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. So the baseline is established right out of the gate. If the Lord is, if the Lord is our God, God gets to tell you what to do, right? So, so right out of the gate, you get a baseline. You're being told to do something. You're being given information by God. He is the Lord, all right? He is God. Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. That means you're thinking about them, you're contemplating, you're ruminating over them, you're you're meditating on them. You're, You're like a cow chewing the cud with respect to God's word. They're in your heart, they're in your mind, and as a consequence of that, they're directing your conduct, they're controlling your conduct. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on your doorpost of your house and on your gates. The idea here is that God's word is all-consuming in the context of our behavior, our relationships, and our conduct. And that's significant. And so let's not forget, when you're confronted by a school board that's decided that Gen, that, that there's no male and no female and that gender is fluid and all of these things and that they're going to tell your son that he can be a girl and your daughter that she can be a man or that they can be nothing or that they can be a cat or a frog or whatever they want to be. You reject that on the basis of what God's word says. And I hope that you're taking the time to talk to your children about that because the school is. I mean, for Pete's sake, SpongeBob is. They're putting this stuff in cartoons. And so, so moms and dads, and then dads in particular, you got to think about this. 
And you need to think about this, men, in the context of your relationship with your wife in God's creative order and mandate. And we hear about mandates a lot, especially during election years. They have a mandate. Well, God always has a mandate. And his mandate is the most important mandate. I don't care how many votes there are. His mandate is the mandate that matters. And so we see here in Deuteronomy this exhortation as it relates to the significance of God's word, the importance of God's word, the preeminence of God's word, and the application of God's word in our daily lives. We want to understand what it is that God is saying to us about these important things. And one of the most important foundations for our culture and for the church is what? The family. The family. And so let's go to Genesis chapter um, 1, and let's just go back to the beginning. And we're going to break down some passages, because I think this is good to be reminded. Young people, you can pay attention. It doesn't matter how old you are. You can hear me. You, can, you understand words to the extent that you're able to do that, and I trust the Holy Spirit will, will, will press upon you the significance of what God is saying. It's more, God's words are more important than your teacher's words are at school, and when they come to you and they tell you something that's different from God's word, you need to know the difference. You need to know that they're wrong. We need to start talking about this. We need to start talking about what's going on in our culture relative to the direct attack on God's creative order and design. The mutilation of children is an abomination, and that's exactly what they're doing. They're destroying our kids. They're destroying our homes. And they're destroying what God has ordained. And so we, can, we need to be mindful of these things, and it, it, it's worthy of the time and effort to look at it. We're going to be looking at three passages in particular in Genesis. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Genesis chapter 2, 7 through 25, and Genesis 3, 1 through 19. And again, my reason for doing this is to make certain that when you step into a passage like Colossians 3, 18, that when you step into it, you're doing it on the basis of, of understanding that God has ordained the order and the content of verse, verse 18 for your benefit and for your good and for his glory. Don't forget that. So you don't step, you don't ever step into 318 as someone who is thinking about it in the context of what the world is saying about it. You step into it on the basis of the foundation that's been laid in Genesis chapters 1 through 3 regarding the relationship between a man and a woman and God's mandates relative to that. Now again, they are mandates. These are not optional suggestions for you to consider and ponder. No, they are directives. This is doctrine, and you need to make certain that you understand it. Christians are need, to, need to speak up about this, and they can't do it until they have an understanding. And so my hope is to equip you better to do these things. So let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the flesh of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right, so there. 
That's a very important passage. I would suggest that that would be a great passage for you and your family to memorize. Because when they're sitting in a, when your kids are sitting in a science class and they're hearing something different or in a health class or in some other equity class that kids are being forced now to take, these words will come to their mind. And that is consistent with what Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 through 9 says. It's in their heart. It's on their mind. You're communicating important foundational truths. Your kids need to know the truth. Now, again, this is not an option. It's the truth, right? This morning, we read in Revelation chapter 6 that there are people in heaven right now who've given their lives because of what? The word of God and their testimonies relative to it. They died because they stood up for what God's word says. They communicated the truth, all right? So that's important. So what do we see? Well, what we see here in Genesis chapter 1 is some important issues or points regarding God's creation. Um, the creation of, of, uh, of humans, of, of men and women, and God's image. Now, what's significant? If you go back and consider this account in, in terms of, of the ancient world, it's quite unique. It's, very, it's really truly unique. It's not colored by the pagan, polytheistic religions of the ancient Near East. According to the Genesis narrative, there is only one God who created all things by his word, capital W. He created man and women uniquely and specifically to bear his image and to represent him on earth. So Moses' declaration of the equality between the sexes was radical for its day. Women, as well as man, bore the stamp of God's divine image. That's significant. So again, this is interesting to me. In our culture today, we have this whole issue about value. The value of a person. Where does a person find value? I listened to this guy who claims to be a pastor at a new church in Alliance, and he spent his whole chapter on how much God wants you to understand your value. But if we're going to find value, we don't find it in anything other than what God intended for us and how God created us. You want worth, you want value, bear in mind that God created you as you are, okay? You are a, you are a, a, a perfect specimen of God's intended. Now, we, we labor under the fall we are, we are diminished in that way. We are not what we would have been otherwise. We will be in glory. We're not like, like what Adam and Eve were in that context. We are tainted by sin. We're corrupted by sin. We labor under the, the weight and the impact and the fall. But keep in mind that, that as we consider what God has done, that, that God created and we bear the stamp of his divine image, so men and women and children, your value is in what God did in creating you. That's it. And what's interesting, too, is that we even see the consequences of what God's intended order was because we know that Adam, the first man, prized and loved Eve, the first woman. She was not his property, nor was she his slave, which would have been contrary to what would have been experienced in the culture at the time that Moses would have written this in the context of the pagan ideology that would have permeated that time frame. That's significant. No one ever talks about that. 
Eve was not Adam's property, nor was she his slave. Newsflash. So men, maybe you need to be reminded of that in terms of how you treat your wife. She's not your property, and she's not your slave. Both of you were created in God's image. You're both image bearers. And so we don't want to, as I know that we're familiar with these passages, you may say, well, pastor, I've read that a hundred times. Well, 101 times won't hurt. And so we need to consider what, what these words mean. So in verse 26, then God said, let us make man. Now, in the Hebrew, that's Adam, which means man, in the sense of mankind, the, the human race, if you will. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over all the earth. And so we see then the establishment of, of the, the priority. Now, we're, this is going to become important because the priority in the context of the creation order is important. It, even in the New Testament, it's, it's referred to. You'll see Paul make reference to the fact that it was Adam who was created, what, first, okay? So, so ladies, keep this in mind, all right? So, so right out of the gate, so, so again, what, I'm, what I, what I want to try to do is that as you step into verse 18, that you're doing so on the basis of understanding what God did in Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28, Okay? If you don't do it that way, you're going to step into verse 18 with a lot of suppositions that are not biblical. They're going to be more likely worldly, humanistic, feministic, all types of things. Or tainted by your own perceptions. Or perhaps even your own experiences. You've got to walk back from that. And understand that verse 18 of Colossians 3 is based upon the content of what we find in verses 26, 27, and 28. When you do it that way, it changes your perspective. And that's what I want. The Bible is about changing the way you think about things. To think God's thoughts after him in the context of what he intended. How he wants you to view your relationship with your husband. What he intended and why the order is what it is. All right? When you begin to grasp that, that begins to change the perceptions that are often more pejorative in nature than helpful. All right? So bear in mind, look right out of the gate. In verse 26, let us make man, mankind. You see the reference already to this idea of the male, the man, the humankind in the context of that designation. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So right there, we have the order. We have the significance of the order as it relates to the designation of the sexes. Now again, bear in mind this. This is biological. This is why I am reticent to use the word gender and rather use the word the sexes or to designate it as sex as it relates to the biological designation for the male and the female. That's important. As Christians, we cannot lose sight of that. Now, I know this might be a bit of a science lesson, but you need it because you're being told something else. You're being told that, 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 that there's no creative design or order as it relates to the designation. You can't alter that. It's biological. I don't care what you call yourself. This is what God did. And that's important. 
Verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over every living thing that moves on the earth. So let's make some observations. First of all, observation number one, God created the human race male and female. Not male, female, and non-binary. I was somewhere yesterday and had to fill out a form. And on the form it said, and they've changed the form, because I've filled this form out many times. You probably know what form it is. You got, you know, you got the box for male, female. That's what it used to be, like six months ago. Yesterday it said male, female, non-binary. Are you kidding me? This is a form that you have to use by the state of Ohio. I mean, it's their form. So already they've stepped out of the context of God's creative order, have they not? There's no category of non-binary in the Bible because there's no such thing. Okay? Do we all agree? There is no such thing. Stop believing that. Don't let your kids believe it. Your kids are being told this. Why do you think kids are walking around in hallways thinking they're a cat? Or thinking they're something else? They're, they're, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a boy today, a girl tomorrow. And there are people actively working and pushing them in this category. That This is ridiculous. And it's offense to God. So we understand then, as we look at, at Genesis, that there is a, that there's a, a specific creative decree. God created the human race, male and female. God created two sexually distinct human beings, the male human and the female human. All right? We don't have to argue about what is a, what is, what is a woman. I mean, this is ridiculous. He designed sexuality and called it what? Good. Right. He says it's good. If God says it's good, it's what? Good. I would submit to you that it's like super good. <laughs> it's not like just kind of good. It's really, really good. It's as good as it gets. It's perfect. Let's not forget that. There aren't varying degrees of goodness in the Bible when God does it. It's as good as it gets. So if you want, you can, you know, Tucker's translation, it's super good. So he designed sexuality and called it good. God did not have to create separate male and female humans. He could have created female humans with the capacity to reproduce themselves. He didn't have to make male humans. But God had a specific purpose in mind when he created two sexually distinct human beings. Isn't that interesting? Two very distinct. Now, again, males and females in the context of the creative order are designed different and are different. They still bear the image of God, but they're different. That's why there's men's tees and ladies' tees. Our purposes, our roles are different. Now, I know there's some ladies who can out-hit me, but I, that's okay. So, God had a specific purpose in mind when he created two sexually distinct human beings. One purpose is to teach his people spiritual truths concerning his relationship with them, especially through the one flesh union of two distinct persons in marriage, as we find in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 29 through 32. And, and basically, as we find in, in Colossians, again, the premise for what Paul is saying is based upon this unique union that comes in the context of marriage. 
Significantly, the fact that both sexes individually bear God's image demonstrate that they are equal in dignity and being. So, so here's what happens. Women, women will step into verse 18, and all of a sudden it's about their dignity. All of a sudden it's about, it's about how they feel about their, their value. That verse 18 diminishes their value. When that happens, what you've done is that you've, you've stepped into 318 without first stepping on 126, 27, and 28 in Genesis. You can't go to 318 without understanding Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28. It, it won't make any sense. It will make you mad. I'll guarantee it. It will make you mad. Well, how can that be? That's not fair. Why is that the case? The word submission itself indicates that there's a lack of dignity and value. No, it doesn't. It speaks to the issue of role. In God's eyes, now keep this in mind, this is so important. Both sexes individually bear God's image, and that demonstrates that they are equal in dignity and being. All right? Equal in dignity and being. Verse 18 of Colossians 3 has nothing to do with the diminished state of dignity or being at all. All right? The second observation that we should make, that God created both the man and the woman in his image. God stamped his divine image and likeness on both the individual man and the individual woman. Both sexes are image bearers of the one true God. Nobility, dignity, and eternity mark their faces. They are not like the animals over which they rule. Isn't that significant? Unique, very unique. So the fact that both sexes individually bear God's image demonstrates, as I've noted, that they are equal in their dignity and in their being. Both are equally necessary and important to God's design for the human race. And by the way, there's only one race. The human race. We've been, we've been sold a bill of goods on that one, too. Everything's race. No, there's ethnic groups within the human race, but there's only one human race. If there were different human races, we'd have a problem with atonement. I'm serious, we would. We'd have a big, big problem because he was like us in all ways, right? He's the God-man. He has to be the same one as us. If there are different races, we would need multiple saviors, a savior for each race. Keep that in mind. There are ethnic groups within the race, but there's only one human race. Okay. Well, what we then find as a third observation is that God commanded both the man and the woman to multiply and rule the earth and I'm going to leave it off there. There's, there's a lot more here, and we're going, to, we're going to take the time to unpackage this because I will submit to you that once we get through this, that verse 18 and the obligations that it contains will be easier to understand and something that you should delight in as it relates to God's creative order and mandate. But you've got to get it right at the beginning and understanding what God intended when he created you in his image. That's so important. And my hope is that your mind will be transformed by the word of God 
and that you'll be better equipped to deal with the onslaught of the error that the church is facing and that you will face and that your children are facing from the world today. And the beauty of all this is that God did this for, for his glory and for our benefit. Um, he, he has given to us um, a, a, a beautiful creation in which to live and exist. I look forward to it all being renewed someday. But in the meantime, we have to understand what it is that he intended for us in terms of our relationship with him and our relationship with each other. And it all begins with these baseline doctrinal issues that we have to get right. So I trust that as you take your time to study these on your own, that the Holy Spirit will open your heart and mind to receive them um, and that you'll revel in the wonder of what it is that he has done for us. And I think even understanding these verses and passages that we'll look at will even make your salvation more significant as you revel in the wonder of what, what God has ordained and how he has ordered these things for us and to our benefit. I think we have to keep that in mind. This is for our good. God said it was super good, right? And so if it's super good for him, it's really super good for you, right? So let's keep that in mind. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the exhortation of your word. Help us to be mindful of these um, directions that we have from your word and to trust in you in the way that uh, gives you the honor and glory that you're due. Help us to understand them. Sometimes, Lord, our, our hearts are hard and our minds are slow. Help us to see what it is that you have for us here so we can revel in the wonder of, of how you've ordered things for us and we can please you in, in the way that we live for you and the way that we worship you and, and, and understand you. Be with us this day, we pray. Um, guide our lives and protect us, we pray, and help us to live in a manner that's worthy of our calling this week. We pray in Christ's name, amen. God bless you.